If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the Gospel according to Mark. The Gospel according to Mark. Um, Some of you may be familiar with, and if you're a guest with us, you won't be familiar with this, but we have been walking through, in some sense, a survey of the entire Bible this past year. Now, it doesn't take a mathematician to know that's hard. 66 books in the Bible, 52 weeks, we're going to skip something. But we have taken our time over the last 30 some odd weeks uh, to work through so far the Old Testament with an eye towards not just every single chapter and verse, but with an eye towards what the one single story is that God is telling throughout the entire scripture. And we've been calling that God's drama of redemption. I mean, how does God work out his great work of redemption and how does all the scriptures All 66 books of the Bible, how are they all together telling that one great story? So we've kind of been tracing our hands over the contours of that story through the Old Testament for the majority of the year. And then last week, we we jumped into the New Testament for the first time. We hit the turning point and the climax in the story, how how God is bringing his promises to fruition ultimately in his son Jesus. And the first four books of the New Testament are called the Gospel Accounts, if you remember us going through this. These accounts narrate the life and the ministry and ultimately the impact of this man, Jesus. And so we're going to slow the story down a little bit. And we're going to take our time kind of working through these Gospel Accounts. But we've talked about it a week or so ago. If you want to go back and listen to it, they're all a bit different. They're all narrating the same life, the same ministry from different points of view. And so what we're going to do at different times is pull on these different accounts to kind of tell this story. But remember, what we're after is telling the story. How does this man Jesus fit into God's redemptive work? And so here's the thing, if you're anything like me and you're at all familiar with these gospel stories, you're going to be very frustrated at me. I want you to feel my angst as we go through this because we're not going to be able to do them all. And even as we go through them, we're going to go through eight wonderful scenes in the gospel of Mark this morning. We don't get to sit on them for a long time. And so you can feel my angst as someone who loves to tell stories and loves the humanity of the Bible in a sense that we're not going to be able to spend a lot of time, but we're going to slow it down to the best that we can. And so here's how I kind of want to set up a little bit of our time this morning as we jump into God, to, to, to Mark's account of Jesus' life and what we're going to be looking at. I've had this particular phrase, this particular thought that's been rumbling around in my mind and in my heart as I've prayed and, and began to prepare, and, and here it is, and it kind of frames the entire morning for me. I want you to know, and and maybe I should ask you, maybe I should put in a question. Are you aware that it's possible, it is possible, to be fascinated by the person of Jesus, to be excited by the person of Jesus, and yet at the same time absolutely miss the reality of who he is? You can be fascinated by Jesus, you can be excited by Jesus, but you can absolutely miss the reality of who he is. And as we jump into Mark's account this morning, it's going to go fast. It's going to be quick. And what Mark is concerned with in this beginning section of his gospel account is that you begin to catch the reality of who this man Jesus is, who he really is. He began his account, if you remember last week, by declaring this, the good news, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Mark's confessional statement at the very beginning sets up what he's going to narrate in the rest of his book. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited Savior, the long-awaited King. He is the Son of God, and now Mark is going to unpack through his narrative how Jesus demonstrates that reality, and it's going to go quick, and it's going to go fast. So if you've got your Bibles, let's open them up. Mark chapter 1, we'll actually start in verse 14. I'm going to read portions, and then we'll talk and read and talk. And we're going to read a lot of the Bible this morning. Mark 1.14 goes this way. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel 
of God. Now here, again, we start slow. I take a sentence. I promise you as we get going, I'll take bigger chunks at a time before I stop and talk. But here's what I want you to see as we read these gospel accounts and narratives. It's been almost a year since the last incident or last scene that Mark narrated for us when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist and went into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Almost a year has gone by getting to this verse in verse 14. Now, the gospel according to John, he tells us a little more about that year. If you were to go back and read his account, you'll find out that after Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he ended up going on into Galilee where he is now already, most likely encountering some of these men that he's going to encounter in just a moment for the first time. From there, he's going to go down to Jerusalem. He's going to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. From there, he's going to leave Jerusalem, head back up north through Samaria, where he's going to have an encounter with a woman at a well. You familiar with that story? You're already going to throw something at me because we're not going to go through it. I know it's a favorite of so many people. We're going to miss that one. But Jesus has already gone through Samaria, and he's had that conversation. All Mark tells us now is that Jesus is in Galilee. We don't know how long he's been there or when he actually got back there. Mark doesn't give us that information. Mark is quick, and he's after making a particular point. But here it is. Jesus is back in Galilee, and John's been arrested. So the work of John the Baptist that we saw last week, preparing the way for the coming king, preparing the way as a messenger, it's coming to an end. John has run his race. He's run his race well. But he finds himself now imprisoned. And now it's time for the ministry and the the work of Jesus to take center stage in the story. So Mark just tells us he's back in Galilee. John's been arrested. And Jesus comes and he's proclaiming. He's preaching the gospel of God, the good news of God. And this is what he's saying. The time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. In Jesus, there was an awareness that history was at a turning point. And there was something about Jesus and in him an awareness that all of human history was turning at this moment. And it was hinging on him on his life, on his coming into this world, his completing his mission. The time being fulfilled, Jesus is referring back to all of the Old Testament promises of God from the very beginning in Genesis 3, where we started this series. The time in which God had promised that one was gonna come who's gonna be born of the woman. He would come and he would defeat the serpent. He would defeat the enemies of God's people. He would crush the serpent's head. He would deliver God's people. All throughout the Old Testament, we heard of the stories and the promises and the prophecies about this one who was to come. This one who is going to fulfill God's promises. And here's Jesus on the scene now, saying the time is fulfilled. All of that anticipation, all of that hope, all of that longing, all of it swelling together, Jesus said, no, it's at hand. The the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God, that long-awaited promise of God, the kingdom of God, where God rules over God's people in God's place by his good word, it's, it's at hand. It's present because I'm present. The time is fulfilled because it's fulfilled in me. The kingdom of God is at hand because I'm here. And here's what Mark wants us to see as he jumps into the rest of his narrative. Jesus is gonna teach throughout his ministry what it means for the kingdom of God to be at hand. For the kingdom of God to be breaking into the reality of our lives here on this earth. For the kingdom of God to be here but yet not be complete. He's gonna teach about what that looks like. But that's not Mark's concern right now. Mark's concern is for you to be overwhelmed by the reality that without a king, there is no kingdom. There is no kingdom without a king. And so Mark is going to now narrate for us through a series of scenes in Jesus' life what it means for him to be king. What is the extent of his rule? What is the extent of his authority? What is the depth of his power? That's where Mark's going to take us. So that's what we're going to have to see. Jesus is going to teach us later what it means for the kingdom to be present. But right now he wants you to see that for the kingdom to be present, there's got to be a king. And he's going to tell us a bit of what what it means for Jesus to be king. So let's pick up the story from there. First scene, verse 
first thing we're going to see is that the authority of Jesus, the authority of Jesus as king, extends over every aspect of your life. Over every aspect of your life. Look at this, verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in a boat mending their nets. And immediately Jesus called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. Again, huge scene. I was just sent a book this week. The entire book is based on this passage. We've got a few minutes. What Mark is after you seeing here is the extent to which Jesus has authority over every aspect of life. Remember, this wasn't the first time these guys met Jesus. If you go back and read John's gospel, they had already met Jesus. They had most likely already heard Jesus teach. They had already encountered Jesus. And Jesus went on his way, ultimately down in Jerusalem, back up through Samaria, and now he's back in Galilee. They've had time to think about this man they met. They'd had time to think about what this man had said. And here's what Mark wants us to catch. He wants us to catch the extent to which Jesus has authority here. He approaches these men who had already met him, who had already heard him. We don't know. Maybe Jesus has been back in Galilee, and they've seen him already since he's been back. We don't know. He doesn't tell us. All we know is that he looks at him, and he says, follow me. And in that moment, they leave what they know. It costs them, in a sense, their livelihood. Jesus had authority that extended into the livelihood of these men. Follow me, and they had to lay down their nets. They had to leave everything that they had known. It cost them their intimacy and connection with their family. We know they had to leave their dad. They had to leave their friends. They had to leave their networks. The authority of Jesus, the call of this king, it extends and impacts and infiltrates every aspect of our life. I'll know if you're aware of it because we can find ourselves very sheltered from a lot of things, but all around the world, thousands upon thousands of men and women, young and old, who hear the call of this king and in obedience to the call of this king decide to follow him, lose their livelihood, lose their families. Muslim men, women, boys and girls who hear the call of this king and follow this king will lose their family. Some of them will lose their lives. There are men and women all around this world who hear the call of this king to go to a place where they have never heard the name of Jesus and they again will look at their lives. Six figures in the bank. Comfortable existence where they are. But a willingness to follow this king. A willingness to lay down what they have for the sake of what he's calling them to do. His authority extends into everything. His authority has no limit. And that's what Mark is going to unpack in the rest of these stories. It's going to extend not only to every aspect of your life. I wish we could just stop and deal with what he says here. But it's going to extend even beyond that. And he wants to show us just how far-reaching the extent of Jesus' authority really is. Let's keep reading. Scene two, Mark wants us to see that Jesus, his words, Jesus speaks, speaks with the divine authority never, never, never had been heard before. Never had this kind of authority been heard before. Watch this, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, 
And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Now, here's how they know that. And when you pick it up later on in the Gospels, when you hear other instances of Jesus' teaching. And when a scribe or an elder of the church or, or religious, a religious leader would teach in the synagogue, or even when a prophet would prophesy in the Old Testament, they would always preface their message with, Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. I am revealing to you God's message. God is revealing his word to you through me. When Jesus teaches, he doesn't say, Thus saith the Lord. You'll see throughout the gospel accounts when Jesus stands up to teach, Jesus says, I say unto you. No, I, I say unto you. The prophets, they would say, thus saith the Lord. Your teachers, they would say, thus saith the Lord. Me, I say unto you. Uh, I am not one who has to appeal to a higher power for authority. I am the divine revelation of God's word and God's authority. When the elders and the prophets and the teachers would speak, it was a custom in the synagogue after someone would stand up and, and read the word to then teach the word when they were done teaching, they would say, amen, amen. Or, or truly I say unto you. That's the, that's the way that, that translates. That's how they would end their teachings. And that was the way the elders could say that what this person had just taught, we say is in agreement with the scriptures and we say is right. Jesus would begin his teachings that way. Amen, amen. Truly I say to you. And Jesus was taking the rug out from underneath their feet. Jesus was saying, look, you, you have no authority to judge me and my teaching. You have no authority higher than me to judge my teaching or reject my teaching. Jesus was declaring that unlike the prophets of old, unlike the scribes, unlike the Pharisees, unlike the elders in the synagogue, he did not, re he did not require the revelation of God to speak on God's behalf. He simply was the revelation of God's word. This is the authority with which Jesus speaks. God's word came to the prophets that we've read about. Jesus simply spoke on his own authority. No one had ever heard anyone speak like this before. Look at this next scene. Mark's quick. Look at this, verse 23. And immediately, we don't have time to linger. Mark's in a hurry. He wants you to feel almost like a tidal wave, the extent of this authority that Jesus has. And in this next scene, what we're going to see is that Jesus has authority even over his enemies. Jesus' authority extends even over his enemies. In this particular scene, even over the demons themselves. Watch this, verse 23. Immediately, while he was teaching, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him. He said, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Again, it's the authority. He commands even unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all of the surrounding region of Galilee. Just note two things in this scene. Nowhere in this scene does Jesus actually claim to have this authority over even his enemies. Spend any amount of time on religious television or in a religious bookstore, and you're bombarded with people making claims to have a particular type of authority. Jesus makes no claim here in the synagogue to have this type of authority even over his enemies. He simply demonstrates it. No hubbub, no building himself up, 
No need to try to convince you about who he is. He simply does it. He never makes the claim to have this kind of authority. He simply demonstrates it. And when he demonstrates it, he doesn't have to call upon some higher power for the authority. No magic spells, no magic prayers, no incantations, no particular type of cloths prayed over by particular people. Doesn't need to do anything before God to get the authority to do what he's doing. No, he simply does it. He simply does it. He simply demonstrates his authority. He has no need to appeal to any higher authority because he is the highest authority. This is what Mark wants you to catch. This is kind of the tidal wave that Mark wants you to be hit by. The authority of Jesus is like nothing you've ever seen before. It extends not into every aspect of your life. It doesn't just extend into the fact that he reveals in a way that has never been revealed before the wisdom of God with authority. No, he in and of himself is the highest authority. Look at this next scene. It's going to go even further. Scene four. Mark wants us to see that Jesus in himself has authority even to heal the body. He has authority even over sickness and disease. Look at verse 29. Immediately, he left the city. Just underline that word immediately. You're going to hear it all the time with Mark. This is Mark's pace. He just wants you to catch the picture. Immediately, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now here's, again, we say it around here all the time for those of you that are guests. You've got to remember to read the Bible like a human. To slow down and read it. This is real people, real history, real time. You've got to read it like a human. They just left church. Now they're going to somebody's house to eat. That's what's happening here. They're going out to Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house to eat. She's cooking for everybody. And here's what I told the first service because it just, it hit me this week. If you've been around the Gospels at all, you know this man, Peter. You know this man that Jesus calls as his disciple. And we're going to learn about Peter later in the story and how impetuous he is, how impulsive he is. It's just, he, I love Peter. You know there was a Mrs. Peter? Have you ever thought about that? The Bible doesn't tell us about Mrs. Peter. But can you imagine what it was like to live with Mrs. Peter? They're going to Peter's mother-in-law's house. They're going to go have lunch. They've been in the synagogue, and they've listened to Jesus with this authority. They've seen this authority demonstrated, and now they're going to go eat. This life. That's what they're doing. And look at what happens when they get there. Simon's mother-in-law laid ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came, and he, he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to Jesus all who were sick or oppressed by demons. Makes sense, right? And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many, many who were sick with various diseases. And he cast out many demons. If any doubt about who's in charge, Jesus would not permit the demons to speak. Get that? Who's in charge? Jesus. Who, who has the authority? Jesus, don't miss it. He wouldn't even permit the demons to speak because they knew him. No claim to have the authority. No big A-frame that his disciples have to carry around. This is Jesus, the man with authority. No books Jesus has to write to convince you of it. He simply has it. And he simply demonstrates it. And Mark gives us this little bit of an interlude. And I wish we had time to preach on this. Again, each one of these scenes, worthy of its own sermon. Worthy of its own multiple week sermon to really kind of unpack it, especially this interlude. Look at verse 35. Rising early in the morning when it was all still dark, Jesus departed and he went to a desolate place and there he prayed. Boy, we could sit there for a little while. In the midst of all the 
chaos, in the midst of all the people, in the midst of all the attention, he pulls away. And he pulls away to pray. He pulls away to spend time with his father. And Simon, here's Peter again, and those who were with him, they searched for Jesus. They found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. Now what's implied in that everyone's looking for you? Remember, be human. Jesus, they're banging in the doors. You're preaching. People are getting healed. Jesus, they're coming from all around to see you. What are you doing out here? All the attention's over here. Jesus, why in the world are you sitting over here all alone? Why? Come on. This is one of the most backwards ministry strategies you'll ever hear. Jesus said to him, let us go to the next town. We're going to go to the next place. I need to preach there also. Listen to this huge. I wish we could just sit here. For this is why I came. Picture perfect clarity on Jesus' part. No bit of attention, no bit of glamour, no bit of hubbub. Nothing could derail him from his purpose. Picture perfect, perfect clarity coming to Jesus. Really spend time out talking about how he kept that clarity in conversation with his father. But he's perfectly clear on why he's here. He's here to proclaim the good news. He's here to proclaim the good news. And the demonstrations of the reality and the authority of that news is what we're seeing in these scenes. So he says, I'm not in the hubbub? No. We've got to go somewhere else. Because this is what I came for. Verse 39, he went throughout all of Galilee preaching in their synagogues. First, what's the priority in the statement? Preaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God and casting out demons. Jesus was clear. My food is to do the will of my Father. I know why I'm here. I know why I'm here. And so we get to the sixth scene. And we see the extent of Jesus' authority and Jesus' power in a way that, again, he'd never seen before. And this one, this one's really going to get him in trouble. This is the one that's going to get him to a cross in Jerusalem in just a couple of years. This is the one that's going to cost him his life. In this scene, we see that Jesus, his authority and his power extends even over sin. Jesus alone, we're going to see, has the authority to forgive sin. And so you have to skip forward a little bit. We'll come back to what we're skipping, I promise. Skip forward a little bit to chapter 2. Look at verse 1. It says, when, when Jesus had returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And what was Jesus doing? He was preaching the word to them. And we know from the beginning of Mark, from the beginning of just what we read this morning, we know what the content of Jesus' message was. The time is at hand. All the hope, all the anticipation, all the longing, all that God's people have been building up for centuries. The time is at hand. The time is at hand. The kingdom of God is here because I'm here. Repent, believe. Jesus is preaching. He knows why he's here. All these miracles, all these things we see him doing, they are signs and demonstrations that validate the authority and the power and the truthfulness of the message. The kingdom has come. It's at hand because the king is here, because I'm here. That's what Jesus is saying, and here he is preaching, proclaiming that to them. Verse 3, and they came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they laid the bed down on which the paralytic laid. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Again, just read it like a human. Put yourself there. Crowded in this little house. 
All these people are coming to hear Jesus. Who knows how, how bulging the room was and how many people were standing outside. And you're in there and you're listening to Jesus and he's preaching with this authority that you've never heard before. He's preaching the reality that all of your long anticipated hopes and fulfillment and the promises of God to his people are coming at hand. They're at hand. They're coming true because he's here. And the dirt starts to fall off the ceiling. And pieces start falling in. There's people up on the roof taking the roof apart. Don't think it wasn't messy. Stuff falling down on people. Jesus trying to teach. All of a sudden, as enough sun pops through, down comes a mat. Now, why the majority of people probably gathered to hear Jesus? What was he doing besides preaching? He was performing great signs and wonders too, right? So even if, again, curiosity about Jesus brought these people here, is there a better entrance than being lowered in from the roof on a mat, right? This is what these people are there for. Let's see it, Jesus, right? Here comes this guy, paralytic, on a mat, being lowered down by his friends, Dust is starting to settle. Everybody's probably quiet at this point. Again, don't be a human. Jesus looks at this man, and what do you think they were expecting him to do? What were they expecting him to do? Heal him. What did Jesus say? Son, your sins are forgiven. Now look, be human. If you were in that spot, let's say you were one of the four that lowered him down from the roof, in that moment, I don't know how long this took, but in that moment, wouldn't you have been just a tad disappointed? Be human. Again, you've got to read it. Wouldn't you have been just a tad disappointed? I mean, you came with the expectation that this man was here. He's teaching, and people are being healed, and we know he healed many. It doesn't say he healed all, but here you are. If anybody's got the authority, if anybody's got the power, this man does. You, you go to the measure of lowering your friend down to the floor, and he looks at him and says, son, and you just, I mean, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? How's he going to do it? Your sins are forgiven. Do you think there's just a tiny little bit of disappointment in there? But here's the thing. They expected Jesus to heal him, and instead Jesus forgives his sins. Mark wants us to catch that Jesus is demonstrating something in this story. The fundamental, the primary need of each and every person concerns sin. The fundamental and primary need of each and every single person is a healing from the ravages of sin. That's the fundamental issue that needs to be dealt with. One of my, my favorite authors from a century or so ago, J.C. Ryle, was a preacher and a bishop in, in England. His most famous book is called Holiness. It's on Christian maturity and, and growth. And he begins a book on growth with a chapter called Sin. And this is how he begins his book. First sentence, first chapter. He that would make great strides in holiness, maturity growth into Christ-likeness, must first consider the greatness of sin. Must first consider the greatness of sin. And this is something that Jesus is demonstrating in what he's doing here. Jesus is showing in picture-perfect clarity that there's something more radical, that something more basic and necessary than this man being physically healed, and that's that this man be made right with God. Something more fundamental than even him standing up and getting off that mat. And that's that he may be made right with God. And in doing this the way that Jesus does it, Jesus is not saying that the physical is insignificant. He's not saying that the physical healing is insignificant. He's simply saying it's not primary. Because ultimately, when it all comes down to it, and we've seen it through the story so far, we'll see it as the story keeps going. Ultimately, when it comes down to it, 
The only real disease that can kill you is sin. That, that's really it. And the only cure, the only medicine for that ultimately is forgiveness. To be forgiven. So this man being made right with God is really the real miracle going on here. Jesus alone has the authority to forgive sins. But the religious leaders were no, under no illusion about what Jesus was doing and saying in this moment. In saying this, Jesus was taking the authority that for all of eternity so far had only been God's right. Only God can forgive sins. And here's Jesus looking at this man, saying, son, I, I forgive you. And some of the scribes were sitting there, verse 6 says, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Heretic. It's done now. Teach what you, say what you, I got, you can't claim to be God. This is what's going to find Jesus on a cross. Watch what he says. And immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, he said to him, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Which one's easier? Here, you want to know why I'm going to go on to heal this man? You know why I'm going to demonstrate my authority not only to forgive sins, but my authority even over this disease? You want to know why I'm going to do it? Listen, but just so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, Jesus said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Here's why I healed you, that you might know that the Son of Man has authority. The extent of the authority of Jesus extends even to the point of the forgiveness of sin. Pick up your bed. Rise. And he rose. And immediately he picked up his bed and he went out before them all. So they were all amazed and they all glorified God. I wish I could preach a sermon right there. And they said, we never saw anything like this. No one had seen anything like this. No one had the authority that Jesus has. They had never seen or heard an authority like this. There's something else Mark wants us to catch. And I, just, I love this. Oh, man. Jesus' authority and Jesus' power is only matched by the depth of Jesus' compassion. Rarely do you hear about authority and power coupled with compassion. The extent of Jesus' authority and power is only matched by the depth of his compassion. Look back at something we skipped back in chapter 1, verse 40. It's a great scene. I'm trying to get through eight scenes. We're on scene 7. Verse 40. A leper came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling. He said to Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. What a statement. If you will, you can make me clean. Move with pity. Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said to him, I will. Be clean. There's Mark's favorite word. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Now to catch, I hope, the gravity 
of the compassion and the depth of the compassion of this particular king, of Jesus. You're going to have to, again, read it like a human and put yourself at the best you can back in this first century period. Even more than that, try to imagine what it was like to be this man if you really want to catch what's happening here. In the first century, leprosy was kind of a catch-all term for a whole constellation of, of skin diseases, very similar to the one we often refer to, refer to as leprosy, leprosy now. But it could have been a number of things. But here's what we know about it. To be a leper in the first century meant that you were considered unclean. Everything about you was unclean. The clothes that touched you were unclean. The walls in the home you had lived in were unclean. The homes would have been ultimately destroyed. And you were an outcast from everyone around you. And the first century medical approach to leprosy was what's called barrier medicine. You know what barrier medicine is? Put up as many barriers between you and that sickness as we possibly can to keep away from it. Because anybody who came in contact with a leper was then considered ritually unclean as well. And so here's what they would do when someone had leprosy. Generally, the best way to keep barriers between them is to quarantine people all together in one place. So you would find pockets of leper colonies in valleys or in ridges, oftentimes in caves. And they would quarantine people with leprosy and these skin diseases in these areas. And what would happen is that they would live there and their family or friends or anyone who still cared about them or loved them would take food out to a particular area nearby the colony where they were living and they would drop the food off. And if the sick person was capable, they would come out and get the food so they could eat. If not, hopefully someone else would grab it for them. They lived their entire life separated from people. If they weren't in a leper colony or in one of these secluded areas and they made their way into a city or they were still living by some, for some reason in the city, we don't know exactly how it worked itself out. Some scholars say both ways, but either way, it's horrible. When you would walk into the street, some scholars say the leper would have to cry out, unclean, unclean. Can you imagine this? You, you stand in the middle of the street, pronounce yourself unclean. Other scholars say the people who would come across the leper would yell, unclean, unclean. Can you imagine what that would feel like? Every time you saw another person, they would yell at you, unclean, unclean, and run across the street. A horrible disease. Ultimately, very similar to the leprosy that we think of in our minds, they would lose the use of their extremities. Ultimately, the majority of the time, lose the extremities themselves, find themselves immobile. If they weren't in a colony and they were in the city, they were left to begging. Painful, horrible disease. This is what this man is dealing with. This is what he's facing. And do you see what Jesus does? This man, loaded with so much pain, physically, mentally, emotionally. Mark says, verse 41, Jesus was moved with pity. And he stretched out his hand, and he touched him. And he said to him, I will. Be clean. Here's what you got to catch. you got to get this. Jesus didn't have to touch him. You get this, right? Jesus didn't have to touch him. We've already seen it. Jesus, with the authority of God, could simply speak a word and the man's clean. Think a thought. The man's clean. His physical healing was not dependent upon the touch of Jesus, so why did he touch him? Why take upon himself what people believe was to be the uncleanliness of this man? Why cross that barrier and touch this man? See, I, I honestly think what God is getting at in this story and what Mark is trying to tell through this story is that the kind of healing that comes with this king isn't one that's limited simply to the physical body. It's a healing that takes into account the whole man, the heart, the soul, the mind, the spirit. 
we know what happens to children when they're deprived of physical touch when they're born, don't we? We know the kinds of complications that happen with children who are ostracized in orphanages or, or in homes and they don't get physical touch and companionship. We have no idea how long this man lived without the touch of another human being. But just imagine yourself not being touched by someone else for the rest of your life. No arm around you. No physical touch. Starved, even mentally and emotionally, from the love and the acceptance, even just the, the, the simple kindness of another human. And here's Jesus reaching his hand out. That's not have to do it. He touches this man. And it wasn't necessary for his physical healing. But I honestly believe it was absolutely necessary for the totality of healing that this man, this king, this savior brings. This was less about his body and more about his soul. More about his heart. More about his spirit. King Jesus and touching this man is showing a depth of compassion, a depth of mercy, and a depth of identification with this man. Watch this. Jesus touches him. Man had been touched forever. And Jesus, according to the law, takes upon himself the uncleanliness of this man, right? Now Jesus is required by law to go through all of the rituals that the people had to go through who had come in contact with a leper. But what happens when Jesus touches him? Does Jesus become unclean? No. What happens? What happens to that leper? He becomes clean. Everything is said that when you touch a leper, you become unclean. But here's Jesus. He touches this man, star for this, and he becomes clean. Jesus is demonstrating the extent of his authority and the extent of this compassion and the extent of what life and restoration in this kingdom looks like in that Jesus is the one who is demonstrating through this touch that he is the source of true cleanliness. It's through him that one is cleansed, that one is cleansed from sin and the defilement of sin and made right and pure to stand before God. There's a contagious type of cleanliness to the touch of Jesus. Instead of becoming unclean, the others are made clean. Mark is trying to just overwhelm you with these scenes and with these stories. And he wants you to see that Jesus, this man Jesus, this king who has proclaimed to be the long-awaited Messiah, he possesses a divine authority greater than any king that God's people had ever seen before. His, his authority was greater and more extensive than any king that Israel had ever seen. He spoke with an authority and a wisdom that no one had ever heard, even from the prophets themselves. And no priest, no priest in all of Israel had ever loved with the kind of compassion and mercy that this man Jesus does. And Thomas Goodwin, great Puritan writer, he said that Jesus' kingly office is an office of power and authority, and his prophetic office is one of knowledge and wisdom, but yet his priestly office is one of grace and mercy. God the Father gave Christ the office of priest to exhibit mercy and compassion. All that Christ does for us is but the expression of that love which was taken up originally in God's own heart. Listen to this. Jesus adds not one drop of love to God's heart. He simply just draws it out. He's just drawing out and demonstrating for us the depth of God's love and God's mercy. And so Goodwin goes on to say, come first then to Jesus. And listen to this. Just, if you have to close your eyes, listen to this. 
He will take you by the hand. And he will go along with you. And he will lead you directly to his father. So here's the last scene. And here's the question for the last scene. Who can take the hand of this all-powerful king? To who can the extension of this hand come? And who can be led by this king into this kingdom? Straight to God the Father. Who, who can hold the hand of the king and be taken into the kingdom? Back at verse 13, chapter 2. Last scene. Here's what we'll see. The only people, the only people excluded from this kingdom are the self-righteous. The only ones who can't take the hand of the king, be led by the king, live life in his kingdom, are the self-righteous. Watch this. Watch how he pulls this out. Chapter 2, verse 13. And Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And he passed by. He saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, we'll know him later as Matthew, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. Later, as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, here's what he said. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Keep that metaphor in your mind. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to set this up two ways. Levi, Matthew, this man was considered by his people to be a traitor. He was an extortioner. He was a tax collector. The way that worked back then was that you would basically buy a franchise from the Roman government for the right to set up a booth or a system to collect taxes from people. So here is Matthew or Levi, an Israelite, who goes to the occupying Roman government and says, I want to buy the right to tax my fellow people. Now, there were two types of tax collectors. There were ones that collected general taxes, like property taxes and income taxes and big things like that. Then there was a whole other group of tax collectors to which Levi belonged that were basically collecting what we would consider when we travel like duty taxes. You go into foreign countries and you bring back items and you pay duty taxes for it. These guys bought the rights from the Roman government to set up booths at roads and crossroads and trade routes that would tax people going along those roads according to whatever parameters they set up. All that Rome asked for was a particular lump sum of money from them. So Levi was a man who looked at his own people, bought the right from Rome to tax his own people, and wasn't even a general tax collector that everybody had to respond to. He sat on the road and said, how many, how many packages are you bringing? Here's what it's going to cost you. How many letters are you carrying? Here's what it's going to cost you. How many legs does your donkey have? That's a particular tax. Anything and everything that they could come up with, they set a tax amount to. And all they had to give Rome was the set amount Rome asked for. So whatever he could get over, that was his. It did not get lower on the social ladder in Israel than a tax collector. He was a traitor. He was an extortioner. His testimony wasn't even allowed in court. He was considered untrustworthy. This period of time, they were no longer even allowed in the temple to worship. That's who this man is. That's who Levi is. Jesus walks up to him. 
I want you. I, I want you. Why? I, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came for sinners and tax collectors like you. Well, who, who are the righteous then? If you didn't come to call the righteous, how do I know that? I, wait a minute, who, who are the righteous? Remember the metaphor. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, what's he saying? Those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick, those who don't think they need me, those who think that according to their own effort and their own work and their own moral obligations, their own adherence to particular laws can, can make themselves right before God. I didn't come to call the well. I didn't come to call the ones that think they don't need a physician. I came to call the sick, the ones who know that in and of themselves no one is righteous. In and of themselves, they are morally bankrupt. In and of themselves, they are sinners. The only ones who can't take the hand of the king into the kingdom are the self-righteous. Ultimately, I guess you could probably say that self-righteousness is the one sin that ultimately damns us to hell forever because it blocks our capacity to see our need for this king to see our need for this Savior. It is ultimately, I guess you could say, the only fatal sin. Because only people who can admit their sin, their spiritual bankruptcy, their utter inability, only, only they can take the hand of this king. Only they can see their need for this king. And see, so here's the shocker, at least for me this week, about this kingdom. As you read the stories, you'll see that the people you think that would be most interested in Christianity and the people that you think would be most interested in what's going on here, the religious and the moral, the ones who follow all the laws, right? When they finally understand who Jesus is and what he's saying and what we actually call Christianity, what that is, they're the ones who ultimately reject it. They're the ones who become the least interested in it. But yet the ones that you would naturally assume would have no interest in it, the, the tax collectors, you know, the, the big sinners, whoever they are in your brain, not you, right, but the other big sinners, the ones you would think would have nothing to do with Christianity, when they actually hear who Jesus is and what he's done, they actually hear about what this good news is, they're the ones that actually take his hand. They're the ones that actually take his hand. They're the ones that can admit their need. They're the ones that can own their sin. They're the ones that can confess their sins. I mean, look at what happened to Matthew. Here's how we'll close. Look at what happened to Matthew. Verse 15. Because as he reclined at his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Well, Levi immediately begins to bring his friends up to Jesus. This transformation is just stunning. He immediately becomes someone who begins to help and care for others. Unbelievable. Later on, Levi will know him as Matthew. He's going to be one of the 12 that follows Jesus, and he's going to write one of these gospel accounts, the gospel according to Matthew. And you know that the only time he mentions himself in his entire gospel account is when he lists the 12 disciples. And do you know what he says about himself? He says, uh, Matthew. He says, the tax collector. The only one in the entire list who gets a nickname based on what he does. Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew, the one totally unworthy of this king's love. But he loved me. He put his hand out to me. He told me to follow him, and he saved me. So here's the bottom line. Here's where it all comes down. It's possible to get excited about Jesus and to miss the reality of who he is. 
It's possible to be fascinated by Jesus, uh, to seek things from Jesus, to look for things externally that might come from his hand, but not really believe in him and see him for who he really is. Even in these quick eight scenes, if you read them carefully, we've already seen a variety of ways that people respond to Jesus and what he says. Large crowds gather to hear him. But as we'll see over time, they're eventually going to fade away. Religious leaders and moral leaders, those most interested in religion and the law, they're ultimately going to question Jesus' character, question Jesus' mission, and as we'll see, they'll ultimately reject him. And then there's a small band of disciples, a small band of followers who will literally lose their lives for the sake of following this king. And so the bottom line is for every single one of us as we spend the next few weeks walking through the life and ministry of this man Jesus is this, which one of these groups are you going to find yourself in? I mean, which one of these three groups do you find yourselves in? Like the religious leaders, will you completely reject him? Question his message, question his content, question his character, question his motive, and ultimately reject him. Will your self-righteousness blind you to the need of this king and this savior? Or like some of the crowds, will you just casually observe Jesus? Will you stand at a distance wondering if you'll find any benefit from being around him? Check to see if you can add anything to your life from hearing him. We know he has a word for the casual crowds later. Matthew, of all people, actually records it. Jesus says a day is going to come when many people are going to come to him and say, didn't we teach in your name? Didn't we do great miracles in your name? He's going to look at him and say, you're going to have to depart. I never actually knew you. Casual observance of the person of Jesus. The crowds are going to fade away. You go back in one of those tragic stories that we looked at. Look at the leper. Touched, touched by Jesus. Cleansed by Jesus. Jesus says, do one thing for me. Go, go through the rites that are required of you to be purified by the priest. But don't tell anybody else about me. And we know from that moment on, he goes and goes to the rites and then tells everybody in town about Jesus. Just think about that. Heard the authority and the power of Jesus. Tasted the grace and mercy of Jesus. One thing to do, and he can't obey him. Can't obey him. Are you going to just casually observe Jesus and see what you might be able to get from him? Or are you going to be like one of the followers of Jesus who unconditionally give their lives to him It costs them everything they knew. Will you, like them, look at Jesus and say simply this, you are my king. And because you are the king, there are no conditions on my obedience to you. I will follow you wherever you lead me. I will do whatever you ask of me. I will give whatever you tell me to give. I will abandon all that I am and all that I have and all that I know to follow you because you are king and you are worthy of nothing less than that. What group will you find yourself in as we go through these stories? It's possible to be fascinated by him, yet miss the reality of who he is altogether. Let me pray for us this morning. God, I just ask very simply that you would do by your Holy Spirit what only you can do and you would show us the reality of your glory your authority and your grace in the person of your son, Jesus. And I pray that you would bring to our hearts surrender to that. 
you would lead us to surrender our hearts to the reality of who you are, that we would turn from ourselves and our self-righteousness and turn to you in faith and believe upon your son, Jesus. Only you can do that, Lord. And I would ask that you would do that this morning for us. In Jesus' name, for his glory, amen.